I'll try and get you out early so that you can fellowship before supper time. Uh, David Strain, our convener, has asked if I would bring to your attention a book that is available in the bookstore. Uh, Professor William Van Dudeward, who teaches at the uh, Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary with Joel Beakey in Grand Rapids, has done a yeoman's service for uh, the Reformed and Evangelical Churches by producing this volume called The Quest for the Historical Adam. Uh, It is not only a historical theological survey that covers 2,000 years of Christian history on that question, but he surveys the current scene, especially in North America, as to what is being taught in the various seminaries on this question. And so he does something like Harold Lenzel did in his famous book in the 1970s, The Battle for the Bible. Uh, as you know, this issue, the issue of the status of the church's uh, belief in the historicity of the Genesis account and the real special creation of Adam and Eve, body and soul, as the fountainhead of humanity is a very, very important question uh, that is receiving a lot of attention. And we are seeing uh, theologians and pastors uh, take positions on that question that compromise the truth of Scripture. And so this is a very, very helpful volume. It's available for you in the bookstore. So I've done my duty by commending to you The Quest for the Historical Adam. It's published by Reformation Heritage Books. Now, it's my joy to address you on the person of Matthew Henry. My guess is most of you know Matthew Henry and have at least used him a little bit, especially from his famous commentary on the Bible. Uh, Matthew Henry was among the leading dissenting ministers of the 17th century in England. He lived from 1662 to 1714. He died as a young man. Uh, Some of you will recognize the year of the date of his birth, 1662, as a very portentous year in the history of the Puritan movement. In England. Uh, Matthew Henry is remembered today chiefly because of his exposition of the Old and the New Testaments, which already by 1855 had gone through 25 editions since the early 1700s. And even now is, of course, uh, available in, in its t- entirety online and free. Uh, as well as in numerous print editions, sometimes in a six-volume set, sometimes in a one-volume unabridged set, and then in various abridged editions. Yet, Matthew Henry's famous commentary on the Bible is by no means the only expression of his engagement with the Scriptures. Among 30 other publications which he prepared and produced in his life, most of which were published in the latter years of his life, his many sermons, 
various works on Christian piety. Uh, there is the, the great book, Matthew Henry's A Method for Prayer with Scriptural Expressions. And I'll say a little bit more about that book later on. But that book itself shows how saturated with the Bible Matthew Henry was. Now, you may know that last year, uh, in 2014, in Chester, England, there was a commemoration of the 300th anniversary of Matthew Henry's death. And I had the privilege of participating in that conference that was co-sponsored by the Chester Cathedral. Fascinatingly, the, the established church in England, the Church of England, uh, had representatives at that conference. That's interesting because, of course, Matthew Henry's father was kicked out of the established church of England. Philip Henry uh, was among those ejected in the great ejection of 1662. Uh, and yet uh, the cathedral library and the current cathedral librarian in Chester is a huge Matthew Henry fan. Um, also, the University of Manchester co-sponsored that work. Now, some of you may recognize the name Manchester because of F.F. F. Bruce. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce was the um, Rylands professor of biblical criticism and interpretation at the University of Manchester and exercised enormous influence in the middle of the 20th century. Well, his, one of his successors, George Brooke, who is himself one of the leading scholars of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the world and whose wife is the canon chancellor of Chester Cathedral, uh, George Brooke, the current Rylands professor, uh, is also very, very interested in Matthew Henry and lives in Chester. And uh, then uh, Dr. Uh, Alexander, who is also a professor of Hebrew at the University of Manchester, has long had an interest in Matthew Henry, and all of them were involved in putting on that conference. And I had the opportunity to speak, especially on Matthew Henry's method for prayer, but because I was there with people who really knew their subject, uh, I thought I needed to prepare a little bit about theological issues and biographical background to be conversant in those matters. And it was a real blessing to read in preparation for that conference. And I want to share just a few things with you today that I learned out of that context. The first thing I want to say to you, though, is if you are interested in Matthew Henry and learning more about him, and you've not read about Matthew Henry before, your first port of call is Alan Harmon's little biography published by Christian Focus Publications, and it's called Matthew Henry, His Life and Influence. This is a superb little volume introducing Matthew Henry, and I commend it to you. Uh, Alan touches on Matthew Henry's life, his ministry, his piety, his preaching, his practice of worship, his prayer, um, his commentaries, and his influence, and does a terrific job in a very, very short piece. This is less than 200 pages. 
most of you will sit down in one evening and read the whole thing and then go back and start rereading parts of it. It's a short book, and it, but it reads well and it introduces you to a lot about Matthew Henry. So I want to commend that to you. Now, um, Matthew Henry had an enormous influence on nonconformity. Uh, I think it was here at the Twin Lakes Fellowship where I heard uh, Terry Johnson reckon that no other single figure has had the practical, theological, homiletical, liturgical, and experiential influence on the nonconformist tradition and its successors that Matthew Henry has had. And I remember I'd, I'd been reading Matthew Henry and I had edited Matthew Henry's method for prayer before Terry said that. And um, I thought to myself, as much as I have appreciated Matthew Henry, I think I've probably underestimated him. And I sort of set out to do the kind of study that would bear out uh, what Terry, and I think Terry, in part, was influenced by Hughes Oliphant Old, uh, who knows a lot about Matthew Henry and has written on Matthew Henry, particularly Matthew Henry's work on prayer. And uh, I've never even asked Terry about that. I'll have to, I'll have to do that today, where it, where it was that led him to make that particular assessment, and, and is that something that came out of his conversations with Dr. Old. But I think Terry's right about that. And the more I've read, uh, the more that has been confirmed. Alan Harmon, who has spent a lifetime studying Matthew Henry, has shown, for instance, the influence of Matthew Henry on Jonathan Edwards, John and Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield. We don't have, for instance, many Whitfield sermons. But the Whitfield sermons that we have, if you pick them up and you open Matthew Henry's commentary to those passages and you look at the outline, you will see that George Whitfield was lifting his outlines right out of Matthew Henry's commentaries. And sometimes his words and phrases come from Matthew Henry's commentaries. His normal practice over the course of his itinerant ministry, was to open up his Greek Testament, Matthew Henry's commentaries, and read them for one hour in the morning before he did anything else. So he had Matthew Henry and his Greek Testament in his bloodstream, and he used the outlining to help him produce the copious numbers of sermons that he had to produce in the course of that itinerant Ministry, But Jonathan Edwards' writings also bear the marks of the influence of uh, Matthew Henry. I first met Matthew Henry glancingly through the commentaries. As a teenage boy, I knew about Matthew Henry's commentaries, and my mother used them regularly. But it was actually Palmer Robertson that properly introduced me to, to Matthew Henry. And Carl will remember this. We, there was a little cadre of students who would go to class early to make sure that we did not miss Dr. Robertson's opening prayers 
before he began to teach biblical theology. Because we had never heard anybody in our life pray like Palmer Robertson. And finally, after a few weeks, a little huddle of us gathered around him after class and screwed up the courage to say, Dr. Robertson, where did you learn how to pray? And his answer was very puritanical. He said, the Bible and the closet. And, and by that he meant, I learned how to pray from my Bible and from praying alone in secret. That's how I learned how to pray. But then he added, but the book outside of the Bible that has helped me most is Matthew Henry's A Method for Prayer with Scriptural Expressions. And I won the sprint to the library after class. And um, the the library did not have a bound copy of the book. Uh, It had a, a photographed copy of the book. And back in the 1980s, photograph copies were bad and expensive. And so there was a spiral bound photographed copy. And so for, for a long time, that was my only contact with Matthew Henry's method for prayer. When I went to the University of Edinburgh, one day I was in the New College Library, and it occurred to me that the New College Library might have a copy of Matthew Henry's method for prayer in its holdings. And so I wandered down to the sort of the third basement level of the library, and sure enough, on the shelf, there was a leather-bound 1817 Barrick edition of Matthew Henry's Method for Prayer. And what I'm about to admit would probably have gotten me thrown into prison, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it. So I got that book, and I carefully packaged it up in bubble wrap, and I mailed it to South Carolina. To my father, who was a printer, and I asked him to pull plates from the book and then send me the book back. And two weeks later, the book arrived back in Edinburgh uh, in good shape, without the librarians knowing, and I returned it to the shelf in the library. And uh, from that 1817 Barrick edition, uh, Matthew Henry's Method for Prayer was republished in the United States for the first time on its own in probably 50 years. Uh, Matthew Henry's Collected Writings contains a copy of it. So if you have that Collected Writings edition that various publishers have put into print, it's in there. But the book had not been printed on its own freestanding for some time. We eventually enfolded his, his three sermons on communion with God, how to begin the day with God, how to spend the day with God, and how to end the day with God into that uh, volume and Christian Focus Publication has kept it in print ever since. And now you can access it online for free uh, in, in multiple English renderings and in nine foreign languages. And you can even have portions of it emailed to you, again, for free every day. If you go to MatthewHenry.org, MatthewHenry.org, you can access the whole thing online for free, and you can sign up for portions of it to be emailed uh, to you every day. And I, I, I edited it, and I have those things emailed to me every day to prompt me to pray uh, and to provide a wide, uh, steady diet for prayer. So that's how I first met Matthew Henry. Now, many Christians know 
the, the name Matthew Henry even if they know very little about the man. He's most famous because of his marvelous and massive commentary on the whole Bible, a work that you can find now in electronic media and in a variety of print versions to this day. It was, the decade, it was the labor of the last decade of his life. He began it in November of 1704, and he ended it, or he left it incomplete, upon his death in 1714. And ministerial colleagues, because of their appreciation for Matthew Henry and their esteem for his person and his ministry, and out of a sense of the significance of the project, completed the work after his death. So if you have the Matthew Henry uh, commentary on the Bible, Matthew Henry completed Genesis through Acts and had extensive notes ready for Romans. And then his colleagues just did the best that they could collecting the rest of his writings and sermons and notes on the rest of the books of the New Testament and completed the volume for him after his death. Now, you could make, and very often people will talk about Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress being the most important book for Puritanism after the Bible. And then oftentimes you'll hear Fox's Book of Martyrs mentioned in that group. I think you could make an argument for Matthew Henry's commentary on Scripture being as or even more important than those volumes. George Whitfield read that commentary through four times on his knees. And it is probably among the top three bestsellers among all of the Puritan nonconformity uh, era uh, publications, despite its size and its cost. It comes to about 7,000 pages. And when it was first published, it cost a quarter of the yearly salary of a working man. And yet was extensively purchased and used all over Britain and then in the colonies soon thereafter. Uh, Matthew Henry was the second son of a prominent nonconformist minister named Philip Henry. Uh, Philip Henry was born in London and had Welsh parents, Derek Thomas will be happy to know. And Matthew Henry himself was born not too far from the Welsh border in a little place called Whitchurch, uh, about 18 miles south-southeast of Chester. And he lived most of his life and did most of his ministry right there in Chester and its environs. He was born in the year of the Great Ejection, in which 2,000 faithful evangelical ministers who refused to accede to the Parliament's Act of Uniformity were expelled from the Church of England. And his father, Philip, was among those men. And this is usually regarded as the end of Puritanism. Puritanism, uh, it, it, people argue over what, what are the dates of the Puritan era, what constitutes 
a Puritan. But my definition is that Puritanism ran from 1562 to 1662. The act of supremacy by Elizabeth in 1662 reaffirming her father's claim to be in charge of church affairs led for a group of Anglican ministers, Church of England, established church ministers who wanted to work for reform in the Church of England in doctrine, government, discipline, and worship. And they worked for 80 years for theological reform in those areas. And in the 1640s, they finally got it. Suddenly, in the 1640s, those men in the Church of England who were wanting reform in doctrine, government, discipline, and worship were in charge of everything. They were in charge of the church. They were in charge of the schools. They were in charge of the universities. And they were in charge of the government. And for almost 20 years, uh, they had enormous cultural influence. And then... Charles II came back to the throne in 1660. Within two years, not only were they kicked out of the church, they were kicked out of the government, they were kicked out of the universities, and they were kicked out of cultural leadership. An unmitigated disaster, you say. Out of that, however, came the era of nonconformity which laid the foundations for what we would call today modern evangelicalism. The low church, non-conforming tradition that influenced Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Congregationalists, Independents in Britain and in America and laid the groundwork for evangelicalism came out of that moment. And Matthew Henry was a product of that. Matthew Henry was early on marked by his studious habits and by his delicate health. Uh, He was reading the Bible for himself by age three and developmentally far ahead of his age group in both knowledge and insight. He experienced a life-threatening fever when he was 10 years old and thought he was going to die. And when he recovered... Uh, Everyone who knew him said he was profoundly changed, never the same again, and they noted that that illness and, uh, and near death had made a profound impression on him and left him with a lifelong concern for and practice of prayer that originated with his recovery from that illness. In any case, those around him noted an uncommon seriousness about him for a boy of his age. Now, the universities were closed to him. So his father had studied at Oxford. Uh, His father's tutor at Oxford, his portrait is still on the walls in the University of Oxford, the man that tutored Philip Henry. Philip Henry studied under John Owen and was a personal friend of Richard Baxter. Now, that's some fuel for some thought on the kind of theological debate that would have gone on in that household. But Matthew Henry couldn't go to Oxford because he wasn't in the Church of England. He was a nonconformist. And so he studied 
under his father who tutored him in Greek and in Hebrew and Latin and French. So he studied under an Oxford Don uh, who wasn't at Oxford. And uh, he also went to Islington. Uh, many of you know the Highbury Islington area in London today. That was a nonconformist hotbed. Uh, it's not in the Bunhill Fields, not far from that area. He went there and he studied under Thomas Doolittle, one of the famous uh, English Presbyterians. He studied at Gray's Inn in London, and he began preaching at the age of 23 and spent most of his years in ministry in a nonconformist church in Chester from 1687 to 1712, 25 years of ministry. And then he was called to a congregation in Hackney. And his thoughts were, he, he had been writing copiously for 10 years, and most of the publishing was being done in London. And his advisor said, if you, if you want to expand your, your writing ministry, it would be better for you to be near the people that are doing the publishing in London. He went there, served two years, and died uh, in 1714. Throughout his life, he was a diligent servant, uh, student of the word, and regularly rose about 4 a.m. to uh, pray and to read and to study. He typically spent eight hours of day in the study in addition to his pastoral visitation. But above all, he was a man of prayer, and the whole of his labors was marked by the wisdom of those who are daily dependent upon the Almighty in prayer. Matthew Henry completed his great book, A Method for Prayer, in 1710, after serving almost a quarter of a century in the same congregation, and it reflects a lifetime of prayer and ministry and Christian experience. And in it, Henry lays out an outline of a plan for prayer, and then he supplies the contents of that prayer from the scriptures themselves. And his extraordinary command of scripture is evident throughout uh, the book. What Henry tells us he did is he basically sits down and he takes the Westminster Directory outline for prayer. And then he tells us that he wrote down the first scriptures that popped into his mind. And 325 pages later, he gave us Matthew Henry's method for prayer with literally thousands of scripture references, most of them from memory, written down. So here, you know, they used to say that John Bunyan, if you pricked him, he'd, he'd bleed Bible. Well, if you pricked Matthew Henry, he would breed, bleed uh, Bible. Matthew Henry's outline didn't follow our more familiar ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication, but rather a six-part outline, Adoration, Confession, Petition for Ourselves, Thanksgiving, intercession for others, and then what he calls conclusion, which especially will focus on things like doxology. He also published another work on prayer in September of 1712 called Daily Directions or Directions for Daily Communion with God in Three Discourses, 
showing how to begin, how to spend, and how to close every day with God. And they were based on sermons that he had preached in August and September of that year, just four months after leaving Chester to take up his post in London. And since 1819, it has been common for those two books to be lumped together and published in one volume. You will benefit from them and go back to them uh, regularly if you utilize them. Now, I want to spend just a little time with you talking about the influence of Matthew Henry. And I want to do that by pointing out uh, two or three areas. One, Matthew Henry's aphorisms. Uh, There are common phrases in Christian language throughout the English-speaking world that can be traced to uh, Matthew Henry. Uh, For instance, many of you were greatly influenced uh, by Betty Elliott and her writings about her martyred husband, Jim Elliott. And Jim Elliott's most famous saying uh, is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep uh, to gain that which he cannot lose. And he got that from Matthew Henry, who got it from his father, Philip Henry. You will find Matthew Henry say that phrase in slightly different ways a number of times because in the context of teaching his congregation about giving. Now, this should warm the cockles of every pastor's heart. Um, Philip Henry would often say this, he is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he cannot lose. So my guess is that Jim Elliot, when he wrote that phrase in his journal, unattributed, had been reading... Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible and had come across one of the places where Matthew Henry said that. Another very famous praise, at least in America, and almost always attributed to Benjamin Franklin is, God helps those who help themselves. Where did Benjamin Franklin get that from? Matthew Henry. Now, already you're interested because you've almost never heard that quote quoted as if it's right. Okay? So I I mentioned that simply to say that quote, God helps them that help themselves or God helps those who help themselves, is usually listed among the five most common quotes that aren't in the Bible that Americans think are in the Bible. And my suspicion is that the reason Americans still think that quote is in the Bible is it is in Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. And Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible was so widely used that that quote, among others, got into its bloodstream. Now, before I go too far, let me defend Matthew Henry. Here's the next thing that I want to say. 
Uh, Matthew Henry has a lot to teach us about how to teach sanctification. The last book that he wrote was called um, The Pleasantness of the Religious Life. And what it, if, if we were to retitle it today, we'd call it The Joy of Sanctification. Uh, it is a remarkable book. I commend it to you. It's in the collected writings. It's occasionally published in paperbacks on its own. So you can find Fleming Revell editions of it with nasty 1970s covers uh, that were published 40 years ago. But it's, it's a book on the joy of sanctification. If you'll just see how Matthew Henry teaches sanctification, you will be blessed personally. And then it'll help you know how to teach the doctrine of sanctification to your people. But here's what I want to do. I want to go to this statement, God helps those who help themselves. And, uh, you know, I think Matt, um, Mike Horton has probably quoted that quote more than any other quote in his books to bash that quote as an example of the incipient Arminianism of American evangelicalism. And Michael may be right about that with regard to the incipient Arminianism of American evangelicalism, but I want you to see how Matthew Henry uses the quote. Because when Matthew Henry talks about our helping himself, you will be very relieved to know that like a good Calvinist, most of the time he says we can't help ourselves. In fact, 41 times in his commentary on the Bible, he emphasizes that we are spiritually dead and therefore unable to help ourselves. So rest easy. Matthew Henry is an Orthodox Calvinist. Let me give you one example of this. Um, he is talking, he's preaching a sermon uh, of a fellow minister, and he says this. The longer men live in the world, the more they experience, the more experience they have of its vanity and the insufficiency to make them happy. And that drives them to set their hearts more on heaven. And the more experience they have of their own weakness and inability to help themselves the more that drives them to rest upon Jesus Christ in his mercy and grace. Now, you will hear that kind of Calvinistic emphasis in Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible over and over again. Again, as I say, 41 times you will encounter a similar phrase in Matthew Henry. But twice you will encounter the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. And surely your interest is peaked to know in what context is that said. So let me share with you from Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. The first time that phrase is used, it's in the story of Joshua at Jericho. The place where he had this vision was by Jericho. In Jericho, so the word is, in it by faith and hope, though as yet he had not begun to lay siege to it, in it in thought and expectation, or in the fields of Jericho, hard by the city, there it should seem he was all alone, fearless of danger, because sure of the divine protection, 
There he was, some think, meditating and praying. And to those who are so employed, God often graciously manifests himself. God will help those who help themselves. Now, what he means is the use of means. When you're faithful in the use of the means of grace that God has appointed, why, God is liable to use those means to bless you. God helps those that helps that help themselves. And then he quotes in Latin the little statement, the law aids those who watch, not those who sleep. So in that context, he is commending the practice of prayer in the believer's life and saying, you know, if you pray, God is liable to graciously answer your prayers. It's not a statement of Pelagianism. It's a statement of the use of means in the Christian life. And you'll find it used the same way the other time that it's used in the book. Uh, So I I commend to you Matthew Henry's statements on sanctification, and I want to vindicate him uh, from any of the aspersions that have been cast upon him because that quote comes not from Ben Franklin but from Matthew Henry. And it's, of course... It's entirely possible that Ben Franklin heard it from George Whitfield, who had swiped it from Matthew Henry. Uh, so, uh, another thing I want to mention about Matthew Henry is that is his his teaching on the atonement. If you look at his Scripture Catechism, and, and can I just say Matthew Henry, um, when he was examined for ordination. Um, essentially wrote out a statement of faith which is the Westminster Confession put into Scripture. He also wrote a Latin thesis defending justification by faith. Um, And the the questions that he wrote out for his own self-examination when he was preparing for the ministry will, will bless your souls. Um, in fact, if I can, I can share, Alan Harmon uh, writes down those questions that Matthew Henry posed to himself. He posed to himself six questions before his ordination. What am I? What have I done? From what principles do I act in this undertaking? You know, even in our ministerial vows today, what do Presbyterians say? That in so far as we know our own hearts, we are taking up this charge for the glory of God and for the good of his people. And Matthew Henry, before that form of the Presbyterian vow was ever written, is asking, from what principles do I act in this undertaking? What are the ends that I aim at in this great undertaking? What do I want And what are my purposes and resolutions for the future? His self-examination for ordination ought to be required reading for every Presbyterian ordinand. It's it's really quite remarkable. And to give you an idea of his theology, uh, here's what he did 
with um, the answer to the presbytery's question to him on effectual calling. Here's how he answered them. Effectual calling is a work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sins and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. And if you go look at Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 31, that's almost it with some biblical language woven in. And he does this off the cuff from memory in answer to the presbytery during his ordination. Now, if you look at him in his teaching on atonement, what is amazing uh, is he will use language on the atonement that would not have offended Baxter, but which explicitly entails Owen's view of particular redemption. Now remember, his father had studied under Owen, and Baxter was a friend to his father. In fact, when his father was imprisoned, Baxter sent his father food in prison uh, to care for him. In those days, the, you, you didn't get food from your from your jailers. You had to get food from your family and friends. And Baxter had such esteem for Philip Henry that he sent him food. And, um, and yet the Henrys clearly sided with Owen, not Baxter, on the atonement. And yet Matthew Henry used language articulating an Owenian view of particular redemption that would not have offended people influenced by Baxter sitting in his congregation. It's quite remarkable how he does this. Uh, David Field's thesis that was published by um, Rutherford House a number of years ago called the, the Calvinism of this era rigid Calvinism in softer dress. Uh, and by that, what he was saying is Matthew Henry was a Westminster Confession man. Uh, but he, especially in the context of the diversity of English nonconformity, he tried to use language that would not unnecessarily alienate people from Westminster truth. He would want to woo them into a Westminster understanding of the atonement without flagging them with language that would have immediately gotten their defenses up. And so he's an example of he's solid theologically, but he's very careful with the language that uh, he uses. Alan Harmon uh, says this about Matthew Henry and his influence on J.I. Packer. He, he actually quotes Packer saying this, For the record, though I do not suppose... I am typical in this. Modern expositions do not help me half as much as does Matthew Henry the Puritan. Uh, a tremendous commendation from J.I. Packer. So I want to commend Matthew Henry to you for your study. Uh, his meditations on communion, which he shared with his congregation, his treatise on baptism are terrific 
And to, to go back to, to Terry's statement from a few years ago, Matthew Henry's influence on theology, homiletics, liturgy, how we worship, and piety. Uh, I think nobody in English nonconformity had the influence that Matthew Henry had. And when you look at what he said, it's exactly what we need today. It's exactly what we need today. So I commend Matthew Henry to you for your study. We've got time to answer a few questions, and then you've still got time to fellowship before the supper break. Any questions that you want to take up at this time? Yes. That's a great question, uh, and I don't, I don't know. Of course, Spurgeon uh, commends Matthew Henry in his commentary on commentaries and uh, recommends that that be one of the volumes uh, that are used, but I've not looked at Spurgeon like I've looked at, um, at folks like Whitfield or uh, Jonathan Edwards. Yes. We do know a little bit about them, and um, and one of the encouraging things about this Matthew Henry colloquium is there there are some people um, in academic circles in English universities that are really interested in this era. The guy who wrote the Dictionary of National Biography entry on Matthew Henry and on Philip Henry uh, spoke at the conference. And he's an expert in 18th century nonconformity. And he knew a lot about those other ministers. Alan Harmon says a little bit about them. And, uh, but there, there is work being done on them. And uh, keep your eyes open. Yes. Uh, several things. One, you can see um, the language. The, the language of Matthew Henry will reappear in those later authors, and it lets you know that they're reading him because the, the phrases are too exact. They're too located in text that he's dealing with, and Whitfield is the most obvious, but look, Wesley as well. It is fascinating. John Wesley loved Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible. Now, he hated its Calvinism. In fact, on several occasions, Wesley undertook to write an Arminian exposition of the Bible. And he gave up and he said, Matthew Henry's commentary cannot be bettered. And so what he, he asked colleagues to edit Matthew Henry to tone down or edit out the Calvinism. But Wesley didn't think that the exposition could be bettered. Um, so that's the kind of influence that Matthew Henry had even on John Wesley. And so you can, mostly you can pick it up in the language, the phraseology, the thought, the ideas. Other questions? Yes. Beyond Roman and Baxter, who are other influences? 
Well, the Westminster divines, um, you know, on, on both Philip Henry and Matthew Henry, they knew the Westminster documents well. And, of course, Philip Henry knew some of the divines well, personally. And um, so the, the Westminster divines were a tremendous influence on both Philip and Matthew Henry. Yes? Do you have any comments on the quality of Romans to Revelation compared to the I don't know whether it is, um, I don't know whether it's me knowing that that section is not actually penned by uh, Henry or whether it's, there is a, a, a marked difference, but I detect a marked difference. In the main areas, I detect that difference is in application. I, I think that one of the reasons that Matthew Henry is still used today is he did such a good job of application in his commentary. And I think a lot of preachers don't necessarily go to him for his exposition as much as they do for his outline and his application. And I think that the applications from Romans to Revelation aren't as good as the applications from Genesis to Acts. Uh, I almost always find at least one helpful application for a sermon that is suggested to me by Henry from Genesis to Acts. And I don't always find that um, when I'm looking in the latter part. Yeah, there was another. Yes. Do we have any sense of those, the commentary and the applications are coming from sermons that he's preaching at the same time? Was it he... Uh, Certainly, he, he took copious notes. And, uh, in fact, the, the way that Alan Harmon got interested in Matthew Henry is his father gave, gave him, Alan Harmon's father gave him an, a, a book, a leather-bound book, with 30 handwritten, heretofore, unpublished and untranscribed sermons of Matthew Henry. Um, which, and, and that's how Alan Harmon learned how to read Matthew Henry's hand, which is very small and, and very hard to read. But if you look at the outlines of his sermons, you'll say, okay, I've seen this before. His, his style of outlining a sermon is very similar to his style of a commentary. But his commentary work he did separately from his sermon preparation. Um, there's, a, there's a hilarious passage um, that, that Alan Harmon um, records where uh, Matthew Henry is uh, he's waked up in the middle of the knife, night by his wife. And he said, uh, my wife was somewhat ill and so I was awakened and took the opportunity to go out to my study and work for a few hours on the commentary. Well, his wife wasn't ill. She was having their child. <laughs> and while his wife was having the child, he was out in the study uh, getting a couple of hours work in on the commentary. So he did that work separately from his sermon preparation. Yes. Yep. 
That's exactly. And if I could just read, Matthew Henry has told us what he did every Sunday. And, and here's what he says. He, he writes this in 1710 to describe what has been the normal course of his pattern on the Lord's Day on Sunday. And here's what he says. Um, he would pray six times in public, sing six times, expound twice, and that's what Terry is talking about. He would do an Old Testament reading in the morning, a New Testament reading in the afternoon, and he would expound it before, um, in, in the context of reading it. And then he would preach twice. He went to the congregation exactly at nine in the morning, and he began the public worship with the singing of the hundredth psalm every time. They opened up with Psalm 100 every time. Uh, He prayed a short but fervent and suitable prayer. Then he read some part of the Old Testament and expounded it, going through it in course. This reminds me of a friend of mine who went to Gilcomston in the 1970s for the first time and heard Mr. Still expound the scripture reading, and he thought that was the sermon. And then, much to his chagrin, that was just the exposition. The sermon was still waiting to come, which was much longer than the, than the exposition. Uh, he would expound it, going through it in course from beginning to end. Then he would sing another psalm, pray for a half hour, then preach and give the benediction. And do the exact same thing in the afternoon except expounding the New Testament. That's what he did for 25 years in Chester. So the, the idea is the commentary provided the basis for the notes from his expositions. Yes. We did that. Uh, we have an original version, so you can read it just like Matthew Henry wrote it. And then we have some in uh, first person singular and some in first person plural just to help ministers and elders who are preparing to pray out loud. So we've deliberately done that, and you can click on the site as to which you want. By the way, Palmer Robertson has updated that book in a little book called A Way to Pray. A Way to Pray, and it's published by the Banner of Truth. And, um, you know, that, the, that book, along with Leading in Worship and the Reform Book of Common Order, all of those are books that every Presbyterian minister ought to have ready to hand as you're preparing for worship. Yes, Terry. MatthewHenry.org. So all, no, no punctuation, just Matthew Henry clumped together in one word, MatthewHenry.org. And uh, everything's free there. Yes. Comments on Personality-wise, he, he was very, very amiable 
and, and well-beloved by his colleagues and by his congregation. In fact, one of the interesting things about his story is Pete, the, the, the next couple of ministers had a hard time following him in Chester uh, because he was not only really good in the pulpit, he really connected with his people. And uh, so that's, he, was, he had a reputation for being, being a very humble man. Uh, and uh, he adored his father. He had a great relationship with his father. And you can, you can see the, the marks of that relationship everywhere uh, in his life. And I think that relationship with his father is one of the things that gave him, as gifted as he was, a deference to authority, a lack of pride and sense of superiority over others, a sense of submitting himself to others. It's, you know, when he was deciding on ordination, 1687, so he's born in 1662, he's 25 years old, um, and the question was this, already in 16, think of 1687, what's on the horizon? The glorious revolution. And the rumors are flying around that if the revolution works like the Protestants want, then the ban on the nonconformist ministers in the Church of England may be lifted and people like Philip Henry and Matthew Henry may be able to go back into the established church again and minister without their consciences being bound. And so many people were saying, Matthew, do not be ordained as a Presbyterian because if the glorious revolution works, if you're ordained as a Presbyterian, that will bar you from being able to minister in the Church of England. So he had strong counselors saying, don't do that. It will close the door for ministry for you. And Matthew Henry reflects, and, and Alan Harmon tells this story. He says, yeah, but I think that the New Testament teaches Presbyterianism is the proper form of church government. And so I'm going to be ordained as a Presbyterian even if it bars me from the opportunity to preach in the established church. And that was the kind of person he was. He didn't, you know, if, if he were an ambitious man, he would have just swallowed the pill and done the Episcopal. Because there were, it's amazing how the Henrys, even after they were ejected from the established church, kept good relationships with the people in the established church. So when Matthew Henry's first wife dies, guess where she's buried? She is buried in the parish church in Chester. Now you have to ask, how does a nonconformist minister's wife get buried in consecrated ground in the Church of England parish church? Because the Henrys were remarkable at being principled and kind at the same time. And they kept good relationship with people. But those are some of the characteristics that strike me about Matthew Henry in terms of his style. His preaching style, his metaphors are great. You know, it's like reading Thomas Brooks a little bit. He's earthy. Uh, great metaphors, great applications. Yeah. All right, brothers. Enjoy your supper. Enjoy your fellowship, Ralphie.